Sunday Sentinel, My Secrets by Kate Merrick, London's nightclub queen. Ten years behind the scenes in London's nightlife. The only authorised self-history of a magnetic woman. We're in Soho. It's 1919. The West End of London is a kind of boomtown. Since the war, Londoners have moved into a new time. There was a real sense of optimism that life might improve. Social lives were becoming much more fluid. You just want to grab life with both hands. Men and women start to enjoy themselves, socialising, drinking, dancing. The old world was breaking down on the dance floor and all these people are rubbing shoulders, literally. Nightclubs are the places to go. Decadent was the favourite word. The glamour of the nightclub. The clubs are purposeless, except for traps for virtue and cages for decadence. The thrill of going to a nightclub is that you may be sitting next to a confidence trickster or a vamp or a jewel thief. These are really transgressive spaces where all sorts of things are going on. And one person, an Irish woman, Kate Merrick, is at the very centre of the fun times. The kind of person who'd be written about in gossip columns. Newspapers want to tell the story of the nightclub queen. She's sort of deviant, isn't she? Absolutely notorious. And she's hard to place. Whose name would be on society's lips. I'm fascinated by the life of Mrs Merrick. I always call her Mrs Merrick. I feel quite deferential towards her. <laughs> she is quite a character. Do I like Kate Merrick? I'm, I'm not sure. Within five years of opening her first nightclub, she ends up in prison for breaking licensing laws and selling alcohol after hours. The more notorious she became, the more times she went to prison, the more famous her club became. Kate Merrick was many things. A mother of eight, a doctor's wife, a businesswoman, and a celebrity prisoner. She was at the center of a morality war between the authorities and partygoers. In West End London, she gave the 1920s its roar. And she wrote her own memoir. How did you feel when you first heard prison gates clang shut behind you? How did you first come to be associated with the nightclub business? The first is not difficult to answer. The second, however, how does anything begin? This memoir, Secrets of the 43 Club, will help us piece together Kate's life. And lots of photos of her exist. Always elegantly dressed, petite, smiling. But there are also court documents, surveillance notes, home secretary files, prison accounts and stacks and stacks of police reports. Through these and interviews with historians, writers and family, I'm going to find out more about Kate Merrick, the Queen of Nightclubs. Bright lights, music, gaiety and laughter and beauty and brilliance spelt life. Written as it should be with a capital L. And life had changed since the end of the war. Here's writer Marek Kahn. During the war, the lights were literally off as a defence against German air raids. When they came back on, suddenly there was this pent-up energy. Professor Luke Blackshill from Oxford University. I mean, this was a decade where you had candles giving way to electric lights, coal stoves giving way to gas cookers. There was also the romance of radio and cinema. People hadn't been able to go out, really. The clubs had been shut down. Things were fading. Literally, the paint was peeling off the walls. Now, everything had changed. The lights are on. People are giddy and ready to live it up. 
This is Professor Heather Shore from Manchester Metropolitan University. It's very cruel, really, how, you know, the soldiers come back often very damaged, and there's a short period where there's quite a lot of sympathy, but very quickly that seems to turn to say, oh, we've got this damaged generation and they're they're dealing with it by going to nightclubs and being hedonistic. This isn't doing the country any good. Aberdeen Press and Journal, Monday 27th of October 1919. London dancing mad. There are warnings being given quietly that there will be public outcries should this craze lead to the revival of the pre-war nightclub with all its doubtful happenings. And this is where Kate Merrick steps into the picture. After the war, a smart business person could readily detect massive opportunities for nightclubs in the centre of London. Kate Merrick rapidly acquired a business sense. New to London, Kate puts her finger on the map and the pulse of the West End. Brightly lit restaurants, packed theatres and pent-up demand. It's primed for nightlife. Her nightclub career all started in about 1919. This is writer and journalist Clodagh Finn. She noticed an advertisement in the paper and it read £50 wanted for partnership to run tea dances. And she answered it and that was the beginning of her career. She was able to bring money to invest in a, a club called Dalton's. And she took to the business like a duck to water. I went into nightclubs simply because I discovered that men will pay anything to be amused. The provision of pleasure and amusement is the one trade in the world in which the buyer rarely counts the cost. I've come to London to find out more about Kate Merrick. I want to trace her life through some of the places where she lived and worked and owned clubs. And what better place to start than here in Leicester Square? I'm here with Joe Thompson and we're outside a slim building on the edge of Leicester Square. Joe, what are we looking at? So we are outside a cocktail bar in Leicester Square, number 28A to be precise. And this is where Mrs Merrick had her very first nightclub venture, Dalton's Nightclub. So Leicester Square is bustling today. I mean, there's people drinking pints, there's people on phones, there's pigeons, there's lights. We can hear music in the background. Lots of people dancing and singing and drawing for money. Tell me about Leicester Square back then in the 1920s. Well, I'm not sure it was too different, to be honest. I mean, it's a bustling centre of life now, and I imagine it was um, very similar then. I would have said that the thing which drew people to Leicester Square was its proximity to the theatres. And I think that often nightclubs like Dalton's and the 43 had people who just come off the stage. So I think that there were a lot of artists and performers around here, which would have meant that there was always something interesting going on. From the very start, the dances at Dalton's Club were a sweeping success. Everyone in London had caught the dancing craze. Almost any place with a respectable band and a decent floor was bound to make money. And it's interesting that all of these years later, 100 years later, it's still a cocktail bar. Still a cocktail bar. And what is making me smile is that they're serving cocktails in teapots, which I think is exactly the kind of thing that Mrs Merrick was doing to convince people that no alcohol was being drunk after hours. (laughs) It's probably very similar to what was going on then. And when a happy hour comes around again, I might slip in myself (laughs) for a cocktail. I'm ready when you are. Sink of iniquity, alleged misuse of London's jazzing club. 
It was my innocent credulity, I'm afraid, which led to Dalton's club being raided. Kate Evelyn Merrick, who was charged with permitting the club to be used as an habitual resort by prostitutes. I had come to London from the country, imagining myself able to recognize from a mile away any woman of the wrong type. But in this, it would seem I was wrong. A jazz dance was in progress, and amongst them, ten women of the class mentioned in the charge. This time, Kate Merrick only gets a fine for breaking the licensing laws, but many more convictions are to follow. She's so independent for a woman of her time. Writer Clodagh Finn hints at some clues in Kate's early life as to what comes later. Kate Merrick was born in Dunleary in August 1875. She was born into a very privileged family, actually. Her mother, Sarah, was married to a doctor, John Nason. And actually, very early on, kind of tragedy hit. He was a very promising doctor, but he died of meningitis when he was just 29. Her mother remarries and Kate and her sister go to live with her mother and stepfather in England. And then the unthinkable happens. Her mother dies when she's just seven years old. So the two girls actually come back to Dunleary. And she was quite funny. She was with her grandmother and two grand-aunts. And she talks about everything being old. The house, the grounds, the coachman, her governess. The house, it was a huge house called Fairyland. And she said that's really appropriate because she seems to have had a really happy time there. She seems to have been, by her own admission, a very wayward child, you know, and she says, I must be ever up and doing something. Life was pressing down on me like a suffocating blanket. I climbed trees and tried to climb the walls. And I find that very amusing because it shows she had this spirit from very early on. Hands dirtied and frocks in tatters. I was in perpetual disgrace. As a young adult, Kate has a couple of short engagements, then quickly meets Ferdinand Merrick and marries him. He was a doctor and they married in Monkstown. Her father-in-law was a clergyman and he did the honours and that was in 1899. They lived in Rathmines for a time and then they moved to England where her husband had a practice in Basingstoke looking after psychiatric patients. Her husband specialised in what was called at the time nerve cases, if you liked. And it becomes clear reading between the lines that she did a lot of her husband's work. He seems to be quite absent. She seems to have a particular gift of for helping psychiatric patients. She took lessons in hypnotism, she said. And it's important here because you see her use those skills in managing people in the nightclubs. Kate Merrick's memoir is interesting. She talks about those patients she helped and many of the incidents and colourful nights in the nightclubs, meeting everyone from actor Charlie Chaplin to writer Joseph Conrad. But her own marriage is covered in the memoir in a single paragraph where she says, I lived in dull and dreary respectability. So I've come to the National Archives in London where I know there are records of Kate Merrick's petitions for divorce. I'm here to meet two people who've sifted through the collection on Kate Merrick. Principal Records Specialist Catherine Howells. Hello, how are you? And Modern Health Records Specialist Laura Robson Mainwaring. We're here in one of the studios here at the National Archives and in front of me on a couple of different tables we have stacks and stacks of papers relating to Kate Merrick. It might be quite surprising that the government archive would hold so many records about this nightclub owner. Kate Merrick actually 
petitioned to divorce from her husband in June 1910. Yeah, she was not very happy. She petitioned for divorce and her husband also petitioned for divorce over several years. They never actually did divorce. They separated and that was when she began her nightclub career. But we see in the kind of reasoning that, that she was giving for a divorce, and in this case, both her and her husband accusing one another of adultery. So, yeah, we can see here that um, she accuses her husband of abuse. Um, she says that she was caught by her throat and threw on the floor of the landing and tore her clothing. So it says here that the respondent insisted on having sexual intercourse with the petitioner against her will, thereby causing her great pain and endangering her life. So yeah, the nature of these accusations are obviously, you know, quite intense. They both deny each other's accusations. So ultimately the divorce doesn't go through. I mean, they are very disturbing accusations, essentially that she was raped by her husband. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, it says he has cursed and sworn at her, used filthy and disgusting language and called her names um, in the presence of the servants in the house. So, yeah, you kind of actually get a real sense of how sort of bad her marriage was. Because I think she was married to him for, you know, a good 15 years. She obviously had eight children. And that's what I think also makes her quite an interesting character because it wasn't until sort of 1919 when she's like, you know, in her mid-40s that she enters this nightclub business. She's kind of like left one life behind her. I find it quite upsetting to look at these and hear the account of her relationship and how much she wanted to get out of it. But it, it possibly gives us some idea of her psychology, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. You can see kind of the motivation behind why she's embraced this 1920s dancing culture, like there's music and drink and fun. Looking at this file, you know, it's nice to know that she's taken this chance of, you know, a second life. I loved a man for many years gone by. I never thought his love for me would die. But he made some changes from old to new. And now I'm going to make some changes too. Singer Sophie Tucker there. Big names like Tucker, Jack Hilton and Paul Whiteman would have come to Merrick's clubs. And she had a string of places over a 10-year period. But Kate Merrick will always be remembered for the 43 Club. Shall I ever forget my first sight of the cellars of 43 Gerrard Street? The puddles of the cellar floor and the noise of scuttling rats. It's just off Leicester Square, which back in the 1920s wouldn't exactly have been a fashionable street in central London. It's only a couple of minutes from her first club, Dalton's. But as it's slightly off the main thoroughfare, it had a kind of allure for pleasure seekers. I'm meeting writer DJ Taylor. Well, what we're looking at is uh, essentially a row of uh, three-storey, I suppose, 16th or 17th century terraces, uh, which are now, of course, been built over and have Chinese lettering on the facades with lots of fruit and vegetables. Ninety years ago, it was the site of the 43. I saw no longer the mildewed walls of a dingy cellar, but the bright interior of the most famous night resort the world has seen in any land or any age. Royalties, peers, millionaires and celebrities gathered together in a glittering throng. One of the most celebrated nightclubs in 20s era London, the place where everybody went, uh, but which had such a bad reputation that the Home Secretary was constantly trying to close it down. Here, 
the loveliest women would captivate the most famous of men. Here, the greatest singers and actors of the age would congregate my club. And how truly prophetic was that dream? On that cellar floor, utter madness was to descend upon Europe's most staid and honored personalities. Yes, on that very spot, where now the rattles gaped and the puddles gleamed. As well as being Lucian and seedy, these places had a definite cachet. They were the sort of places where aristocratic, genteel young men and sometimes a few women would have come on after grand parties and debutante balls. There were nights when the 43 might almost have been mistaken for an overflow meeting from the House of Lords, with princes, dukes, earls and countesses all moving in a light-hearted maze beneath the gay streamers and balloons. So it's all very much changed since Mrs Merrick used to entertain uh, the aristocracy here out of hours in the 1920s. I mean, there would have been low lives, there would have been the occasional drug dealer. Obviously, prostitutes would have seethed around the place. But at the same time, these places had cachet. Her most famous club, the 43 Club, it sounded like a desperate dive when she went in first. But she had a vision. And I think it was always a little bit smoky and dingy. The idea was to pack the people in so that the whole place would be dancing, literally. I think there was a wonderful atmosphere. Almost like a kind of craze for something we might think of as slumming amongst bohemian aristocrats. It is increasingly fashionable to go and seek out venues that carry with them the sense of crossing social boundaries or cultural boundaries to get there. It's constant glitter, coupled with endless variety. A group of the aristocracy at one table, a group of bootleggers perhaps at the next, an artist of international repute with a world-famous actress at the table beyond, and after that, maybe even a clergyman or two. Mrs Merrick had a business model uh, which relied on the employment of what were known as dance instructresses. Uh, these weren't really instructresses. Men didn't uh, pay to learn how to dance with them. They were dancing companions. Uh, Mrs Merrick paid them a, a small salary and they made most of their money from the tips that the, their male partners paid them. It strikes me that she was a real creative person and that she travelled around Paris and Berlin and other nightclubs to see how she might make the most exciting nightclub in London. And when she set up the Silver Slipper, it had a glass floor, completely made of glass, and underneath it, it had coloured lights which flashed. So you had this pulsating wave of light. It's phenomenal. It's technology at its height, even for now. Nightclub culture was very important for the 1920s. This is one of the things that seriously worried the police force, lest they arrive on the dance floor of the Silver Slipper and find the Prince of Wales doing the Charleston. Suddenly, and with a shock like that of the impact of icy water, come the judge's level tones floating to me out of that misty distance. So now, Kate Merrick, 
I sentence you to six months imprisonment. I try to rise, to gasp out something in my own defense, to plead, oh, to plead not to be sent to that dread place. Come this way, orders a voice. The wardress has me by the arm. She's leading me out and down to the cells below. For the first time in my whole life, I am no longer free, but shut up, caged like some dangerous animal. I want to rave, to throw myself on those iron bars and force my way out to home and freedom. Just one more chance I've learned the meaning of repentance Now you're the jury at my trial 1924 is Kate Merrick's first stint in prison and she spends six months in Holloway. But when she gets out, the crackdown on nightclubs hasn't gotten any better. The nightclub comes to stand in for all of the things that are wrong with Britain in the 1920s. This is Professor Matt Holbrook of the University of Birmingham. National life has gone from selflessness, service, heroism, stoicism during the war, to indulgence, frivolity, hedonism. This is not what they died for. Social historians talk about the roaring 20s, and certainly the 20s in London, if not the whole of England, are seen as this great period of licence and liberty and a sort of social and moral free-for-all. But in fact, it was a very repressive era. I mean, this is the era of what was called DORA, an acronym for the Defence of the Realm Act. Very tough social legislation dating from the days of the Great War, when the population, it was thought, had to be kept in line. Dora becomes almost like a character in the literature at this time, trying to repress as antisocial behaviour around drinking, around drugs, around nightlife. There was lots of worry about soldiers coming into London and being corrupted by the metropolis. Lots of worries about women of a dubious character, prostitution. The old days of the right of every man to do as he likes with his own is a relic of the 18th and 19th century and will not work in the 20th. These words have been spoken by the Home Secretary in reference to Dora truly. Sir William Joynson Hicks seems himself to be a relic of feudal times with autocratic ideas to match. Jicks was the nickname given to Sir William Joynson Hicks, who was the um, Conservative Home Secretary between 1924 and 29, whom it has to be said even conservative parts of the media satirised. Johnson Hicks is best remembered for his kind of ongoing feud or ongoing campaign against Mrs. Merrick. So Johnson Hicks was a stalwart conservative, a fairly puritanical Christian, with a relatively strong mandate to enact moral leadership. In fact, the very genesis of the nightclub was as a mechanism to try to evade this licensing legislation. Many of Merrick's um, clients turned up at the club at 11 o'clock when they weren't otherwise able to order alcohol. It was still illegal to sell alcohol in those premises, I should hasten to add, after 11 o'clock, but very difficult to find out that it was being done. It's partly about women growing in independence, seen as being out of control and dressing inappropriately, behaving sexually inappropriately, drinking alcohol, all the sorts of things that you're not supposed to do. The dying gasps of Victorian society hitting modernity, and I guess that's the thing about the 20s. It's a real shift. It is very metropolitan, so if you're sitting in rural Ireland, you wouldn't have noticed all this. And anyway, you've got lots of other things to worry about in the 1920s in Ireland. 
It's easy to see Johnson Hicks with today's eyes as being, you know, an extremely reactionary social conservative. But of course, he probably had more supporters than he had detractors. Talk about the roaring 20s, but there were an awful lot of people trying very hard to make sure that the 20s didn't roar at all. In fact, barely squeaked. And you've got an intriguing figure, you know, like Kate Merrick, who was constantly playing cat and mouse with the law um, at the heart of, you know, one of the most famous postcodes in Britain, never mind the world. You can see the amount of intelligence gathering going on because there's just paper after paper here, file after file, about what was going on in these nightclubs, particularly around licensing laws, around the types of people who were visiting the clubs. And the detail in these records is very intricate. I'm looking at a file here in front of me and there seems to be hundreds of pages in here. Catherine, what are we looking at? It says Metropolitan Police at the top. Yeah, so this is one of several files we have from the Metropolitan Police covering Kate Merrick's activities. They were doing surveillance on the clubs, they were going in, in plain clothes and then they are really detailed. They explain step by step what the police were doing, how they entered the club, what they found, what they saw, who they spoke to what people were drinking even. This says Metropolitan Police, Vine Street Station, and the 19th of February, 1922. And I'm just going to read a little bit. I beg to report that by virtue of a search warrant granted with Police Sergeant Goddard and other officers at 1.50am Sunday, February 19th, these premises are called 43 Dance Club and Mrs. Kate Evelyn Merrick is the occupier and is assisted in the management by her daughter, Mary Merrick, aged 21. So we know exactly who's there. What else does it tell us? And it's quite a frantic scene when they first enter. And this is quite an early raid. This is 1922. So I think you can see as time goes on in her career, the people in her clubs and, and her herself became a little bit more relaxed about the whole experience. And the reports, I said, we are police officers and I hold a warrant to enter and search these premises for intoxicating liquor. You are all drinking whiskey. I want your names and addresses. I mean, he, he means business, doesn't he? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're really trying to crack down on this. And this is all because there were very strict licensing laws at this time. And yeah, she was, she was uh, flouting these laws. People were drinking whiskey and they weren't hiding it very well, clearly, at this point. Well, you know, I think it's really interesting to see Sergeant George Goddard's name crop up in these files because he becomes really important later on, as we'll find out, in... Kate Merrick's downfall, doesn't he? Yeah, this is an early appearance of Goddard in these records. Um, but later on, we find more examples of Goddard being present or there being other raids around later in the, in the 20s where they do a raid and they don't find anything. And it's almost suspiciously um, law-abiding. They're all drinking kind of fruit cup and they're just having sandwiches and everything's fine and nobody's drinking. So what we're looking at here is an early raid in uh, Merrick's club in the 43. But you have stacks and stacks of different raid reports here. Um, I think even in like a six-month period, I think at one point there was 14 raids. We actually have a letter from an anonymous tipper and we actually have the original envelope that it was sent in. So it was sent into Scotland Yard. And we can see here that it says, drinking still goes on at the 43 Club and is now being consumed in lavatories from Anonymous. And it's written in quite crude capital letters, isn't it? Yeah. And in pencil and on lined, sort of half a sheet of lined pink paper with a pink envelope. <laughs> yes, it's just incredible that we still have it in the records today. So when the police are raiding these clubs, they're having to partake in the activities to kind of look like they're part of the clientele. So, you know, they're actually having to enjoy themselves while they're doing this. And they say there, we stayed there until about 5.30am. 
when we left, everything appeared normal. So, I yeah. mean, they're probably going to have to put in another shift in the club to figure it out, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. We and the girls we met there consumed quite a considerable number of whiskies, something like 80. So, yeah, these policemen were probably enjoying themselves whilst they were gathering all this intelligence. A little bit too much, maybe. Yeah. If it's naughty to ask for more, let a lady confess I want to be £500,000 has passed through my hands. From door money alone came approximately 100000 And the profits on drink and food were, of course, substantial. When the going was good, uh, in the late 1920s, she was able to make a very substantial amount of money. Uh, and also, uh, the other important thing, inquire a great deal of social prestige and marry her daughters off into the aristocracy, which took some doing, even in the 1920s. And she had this motto, Earls for my girls, and she was racy and exciting and ran exciting places with exciting and, and wonderfully beautiful women. And it was all very good fun. I'm Charles Canoole, and... Um, I'm Ma Merrick's great-grandson, and Ma Merrick's eldest daughter was my grandmother, known in the family as May, although Mary is what's on her birth certificate. It was a memorable day for me when Lord Canoole and May were married, and a memorable day for them as well, for they have been ideally happy ever since. And May, my grandmother, was very much Ma Merrick's right hand so that when Ma Merrick was in prison, May would um, look after the business empire, and I think did it pretty successfully. Ma Merrick was probably quite a canny businesswoman in terms of who else she recruited, because there were various floor shows and good barmen, and she was quite maternal to her staff as well, which I think was another reason she was known as Ma Merrick. I have kept the vow that I would make good men and women of my children economically secure. I have my reward in their respect and love. So my father was orphaned age three, and so I never met May, my grandmother, but boy did I know some of her sisters. Two of them were just riotous fun, even into their latter years, and very dangerous if you went out for dinner with them. <laughs> but um, I, I don't know what that, that wonderful love of life that must have been given to them by their mother was just very special. I think the, the Merrick girls, mother and daughters, would have been giving vast quantities of fun energy into the room. And I'm absolutely certain that, that that's why people wanted to go back. It's hard to get across this infectious spirit that was in them. And I, I, I dare say, and I always thought this, that's what must have made the nightclubs so special, that you started the night with three or four people in the room who actually could make any room just good fun to be in. And then you think, well, what actually went on in her mind? Five times in prison, that's, that's a lot, even by the standards of the 1920s. You know, the, the authorities had obviously got it in for her. 
in a big way. And you think, what does she think about this? What is the psychology? I, I, I detect a kind of stubbornness. There is this aspect of a woman, a woman, remember, you know, operating very much in a man's world in the 1920s, doing what she wants to do and being good at it, but being discreet as well. You know, Mrs Merrick never makes a fuss about herself. The fuss is made by other people. It's not as if the 43 ever advertised. All the advertising was done on its behalf by novelists and gossip columnists. Birmingham Daily Gazette, Monday 8th of December 1930. Mrs Kate Merrick, the nightclub queen, received great welcome at the 43 Club London on Saturday night after her release from Holloway Prison earlier in the day. I think she becomes the queen of nightclubs because the press make her the queen of nightclubs. You know, the public always likes an underdog. She was always being had up. Her clubs were always being raided. She was always appearing in the newspapers. I think she changes and thinks well, you're claiming I'm all of these things. I might as well be these things. I can't go back to being a doctor's wife. You, you've tarnished my name and my reputation. What, what option do you leave me now? I think she saw herself as a kind of cog that made the, sort of the upper wheels of the society of which she was a part move, and I think she would have been proud of that. There are lots of newspaper articles. So this is the Sunday Post, November the 23rd, 1924, and the article is Queen of the Nightclubs. Mrs Merrick was heavily fined for selling drink without a licence. There seems to be no doubt that the Queen was easily able to pay her fines out of the enormous takings at the club she ran. It is surprising, however, the number of new dens that keep opening. Smuggled liquor finds its way to the members and the game goes merrily along. And her picture is there, isn't it? Yes, that's not at all how I picture her. How do you picture her? Well, she's got these twinkly little brown eyes and this sort of brown slightly wavy bob and she's a very slender petite lady she's usually got a shawl or a fur coat on and yeah definitely in the early 20s there is a real twinkle in her eye that is is um, very enchanting over a decade she has at least 13 nightclubs brett's the slipping club bunch of keys broadway and many more they open and close some just change names but the one quiet constant is Kate herself. She was, in many ways, I think, quite an odd figure because often when she was in the club, she didn't dress particularly glamorously, uh, but she almost sort of stood out against this backdrop of flappers and extremely well-dressed aristocrats. So Mrs Merrick was very hands-on. Her office was in the entrance to the nightclub. And from that entrance, she used to vet all the people coming in. And... You really see she had a very canny understanding of human nature. She would interview people herself when they came into one of her clubs, if she was there, and decide whether they were admitted or not. Crowd control in the clubs becomes really important, especially when it comes to politics. Irish men were continually having to be thrown out. Soon we grew cautious and would only allow one side in at a time. If the black and tans came along first, it was their evening. But if the Sinn Féin arrived earlier, it was theirs. Certainly her three daughters that I knew were very proud of their Irish roots, and Ma Mary, I think she was very proud of them, and they felt it gave them a, a, a ticket to be a bit more fun and to laugh a bit more in life. And they used to sort of remark about that, all of them. 
Well, Kate Merrick is very well known in England, much less so in Ireland. I think she's really under the radar. Perhaps part of that is because she lived in England and all that befell her happened in England. And I think we have a tendency in Ireland too to think if it doesn't happen here, well, then it's not part of our history. And if you look at the 1920s and 30s in Ireland, it was very much about the War of Independence, the Civil War, the creation of the state, what we're going to be as Irish people. And here's this renegade living it up in the 20s in the jazz era London, you know. She doesn't fit with the narrative, but in a way she's really inspiring because she can show you that anything is possible. A lively scene emerges around Kate Merrick's clubs. Simply put, they're just great fun. But of course, they run close to the edge of legality, and so police and the press always have them in their sights, especially when it comes to drugs. There's a big moral panic around drugs, cocaine use in particular, in the decade after the Great War, fueled by a couple of high-profile deaths of glamorous young women, Billy Carleton, the actress in 1918, Frida Kempton, who was one of Mrs. Merrick's dance instructresses, in 1922. After Frieda Kempton's death, the press set off enthusiastically into the, the nightclub world in search of cocaine and girl victims. The drug story was a drama. Frieda Kempton. She was young, she was beautiful, and she danced. She called herself a dance instructress, but it is evident that she was a foolish little moth whose wings were scorched by the flame of vicious luxury. The butterfly women, or they're also seen as moths, I mean, it's a, a kind of double image. This is Professor Lucy Bland from Cambridge University. They would go to the nightclubs and they might go too near the burning flame <laughs> and get singed, possibly fatally. So this idea of the lure... The lure of drugs, the lure of nightclubs. It's a nighttime economy, it's a nighttime role. What seems to happen with Frida Kempton is that she's taking a lot of cocaine really to keep herself going. The big kind of scandals that fuel the moral panic about drugs invariably involve a, a kind of sinister alien, in inverted commons figure, like the Chinese drug dealer, restaurateur Brilliant Chang. Chang was one of the most unscrupulous characters of post-war London. His snake-like eyes and powerful personality used to fascinate nearly all the women he met and all too often led to their downfall. He was undoubtedly the mastermind behind the drug traffic in England. Mayrick does mention him. She's quite huffy about him coming into our club and being, you know, an object of attention there. I could not help noticing that... Whenever my girls came back from these little excursions to Chang's place, they showed signs of some queer, nervous excitement. It did not take me long to deduce that he had been supplying them with drugs in some form or other. Kate Merrick was very against drugs. She wouldn't allow Brilliant Chang into her nightclubs. She saw him as a really bad and a kind of evil influence, but I think she regretted she hadn't managed to protect Frida from him. I shall never forget Frida's strained white face as she made confession to me of her drug curse and its ever-increasing mastery over her. 
With the spotlight always on our clubs, it isn't long before all the surveillance and undercover work catches up with Kate Merrick and she comes unstuck again. The other part of it, of course, is the story of Sergeant Goddard, who's the corrupt policeman who was apparently in this conflictual relationship with Merrick. Merrick's not very keen on Goddard, it has to be said. Well, Merrick's downfall is is really, really simple. She's, in effect, exposed for bribing George Goddard, the police officer that, on the surface, has done so, so much to kind of control or limit her business, but has clearly... He has a kind of glamorous lifestyle, a house, a car, a bank account that really is quite out of kilter with his salary as a police officer. There was also a trail of dirty money, of course, that was very dramatically linked to Goddard. It was simply that lots of money, banknotes, were found on Goddard and it was possible to be able to trace that money back to Merrick and that was really the sort of smoking gun. The final piece of the jigsaw slots into place that this renowned nightclub entrepreneur has been bribing a key figure in the Metropolitan Police for a huge period of time in the 1920s. So Kate Merrick had been running clubs now for a number of years. She's also been to prison a couple of times for breaking the licensing laws. But the worst stint in prison is just about to come. I'm here at the Old Bailey in London. It's the Central Criminal Court for England and Wales. And in January 1929, it's the place to be because Sergeant Goddard stands trial and Kate Merrick, alongside him, is accused of bribery and corruption. The newspapers are all over it. The public gallery of the courtroom was packed. Every day, court was sitting. There were very extensive coverage um, in the newspapers. And she was really a figure of you know, considerable public interest. When I entered the Old Bailey dock... I see the whole picture so clearly. Over there, said the jury, a stolid-looking body of middle-class men and women. No sympathy or kindness to be read in any of their faces. And there is the judge, Mr Justice Avery, looking so stern, so cold and remote and forbidding, in that immense drama we call the law. So Merrick as someone who kind of straddles the boundary between celebrity culture and crime, is an ideal figure for journalists writing in the 1920s because she goes through this series of scandalous trials which gives an opportunity for newspapers to, uh, to go to town on the kind of glamorous female entrepreneur. And then the fashionably dressed throng in court, the mean crowd packed in the gallery... Smart people and shabby alike, all waiting like human vultures to gloat over the spectacle of a fellow creature going through the depths of agony and degradation. How I loathe and detest them all. And what she said was, well, it wasn't corruption, it was extortion. He said to me, unless you give me money, I will shut you down. It wasn't a question of me going to him saying, I'm going to give you money, not shut me down. And there is, of course, a legal distinction between those two things. So the trial ends after seven days and all accused were found guilty. Goddard gets 18 months and Merrick gets 15 months of hard labour. Now she's already seen inside of Holloway Prison. This must have been a real shock for a 52-year-old woman to have to go back. This is quite a severe sentence. The drive to Holloway Prison seems endless. I sink into a stupor, 
Caitlin Davis's book, Bad Girls, is about Holloway Women's Prison. It was built to look like a medieval castle with these sort of high turrets and, and battlements. And its express purpose was to be, quote, a terror to evildoers. That's what was written on the inscription stone. And it was flagged by these two massive stone griffins on either side of the entrance gate. And one, one held a leg iron in, in its talons. So, you know, that already told her the sort of place that she was arriving at. And it was a terrifying place. And abruptly, the harsh clang of the prison gates behind us shocks me back to consciousness of my surroundings, back to the fullness of my misery. It was a very old building. It was incredibly noisy. She would have heard the shouts and the screams and the cries from the hundreds of other women inside. Um, and because of the way it was built, the sound was really magnified. The keys jangling, you heard the cell doors banging shut and being locked. And from the moment she was put in the cell, she's under constant surveillance. Through the long, long hours of solitude, I hate staring up at the grim window bars, the bare blank walls and the terrible iron door with the tiny spy hole. Always alone, yet never unwatched. There would have been rats everywhere, these stone cold walls, frightening. No longer Mrs. Merrick, not even Ma Merrick, just Merrick, caged like a beast. Society's revenge on me for my audacity, for my folly for what society itself chooses to call my criminality. Kate herself describes the food as awful, rancid bacon and uh, rank margarine. And she talks about the long hours spent alone. And she talked about the horror and sadness of prison life. The prison clock bangs out the strokes slowly and deliberately, each stroke heavy and dull as a blow of fate. Actually, we have here in our Home Office records a petition from her daughter who actually writes into the Home Secretary about the condition of her mother in prison. This is from October the 7th, 1929. So she's saying to the Home Secretary, Dear Sir, I and my sisters are so terribly worried about the state of my mother's health. Mrs Kate Merrick, now undergoing imprisonment at Holloway Prison, she gets thinner and frailer every time we see her. And last time we saw her, we were terribly shocked by her altered appearance. Then she's like begging the Home Secretary to reduce the sentence and get her mother out. Kate Merrick went to jail five times. So she was certainly resilient and somebody who would bounce back up if she got knocked down. But successive imprisonments did take their toll on her health. In spite of prison wearing her down, she doesn't give up. She gets out, her clubs keep going, and so does her defiant spirit. There are photographs in the newspaper of the party that's thrown for her by her daughters when she comes out of prison. This is the moment when Secrets of the 43 is published as a way of capitalising on this moment of notoriety and putting the record straight. As the jazz age dimmed and as, you know, a, a grimmer and more sort of, I suppose, less hedonistic age began, very quickly, Merrick and her clubs came to stand for something that was beautiful, naive, individualistic, hedonistic, and then also, crucially, lost. You know, if we're talking about 
the Roaring Twenties, if indeed they roared. She was a symbolic figure. She's stitched into the fabric of the age. And so, despite the fact that she was simply a West End nightclub proprietor, her, her legacy is a surprising enduring one nearly 100 years later. I like the way that she's very invested in her family. She's clearly motivated by setting them up. When the police first start raiding her and she goes to prison, why doesn't she stop then? Why does she just carry on? It can't just be about money. There's just something in her that wants to carry on. She shattered every single stereotype. She is such a trailblazing figure. London Derry Sentinel, Saturday, 21st of January, 1933. Mrs. Kate Merrick, London's nightclub queen, died late. Thursday night of pneumonia. She defied the police of the metropolis and went to prison five times between 1924 and was weakened by several periods of imprisonment. El Canoo, her her son home, she was a typical family woman. The funeral service for Mrs. Kate Merrick was attended by many well-known figures in nightclub life. Among the reeds was one sent by London taxi cab drivers. Mrs. Merrick was born at Kingstown and never lost her Irish accent. What then is the message of this life of mine that I endeavoured to describe? Queen of the nightclubs. To what end? What had the title gained for me? What have I to show for all those crowded years? I find myself demanding of the grey blankness whether, after all, it was worth it. <laughs>